0: episode of Diversity on Fire. The goal with this podcast is to inspire you to think more openly, consider new perspectives, and set fire to your negative bias so we can all rise from those ashes to create a more informed and inclusive world together. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity related topics. Joining me today is Michael Fossberg. Michael holds many titles, a few of which are actor, author, speaker, diversity and inclusion trainer, educator, and founder of Incognito Inc. Michael has harnessed his own unique and very personal life story as a way to promote dialogue around race, identity, and self-discovery. Welcome to the show, Michael.
1: Thanks, Heather. It's good to be here with you.
0: Yeah, I uh, I always do prep. I mean, you mentioned too that you're a podcast host as well, so of course yes. you understand prep. I always I'm so fascinated by everyone's story. Yes. Yours, there, there were some chords as I was looking into yours that really, I don't know, they really struck me in a way that was, I don't know, I didn't expect it maybe is what I'm trying to say. Sure. So typically, I start out by asking guests to share their personal backstory, kind of gives us a reference point um, from where their perspectives might come from. In your case, I'd like to be specific and break it down <laughs> to like a before and after. So can you yeah. share with us what your backstory is and your cultural experience growing up before you learned about your biological father?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I grew up in a working class white family in the northern suburbs of Chicago, a little town called Waukegan uh, is on the lakefront and um, Lake Michigan. And uh, I grew up with my biological mother uh, who was of Armenian descent and an adoptive stepfather who um, so my 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 mother had left my biological father when I was about two and then she remarried when I was about five almost five but I don't have any either any recollection of my biological father nor did I have any um, information about him my mother never told me anything about him so what uh, so anyway, she remarried when I was almost five, I was at their wedding, I I acted out very inappropriately, as I'm told, I don't remember, of course, but uh, I think I was acting out because here my mother was, um, I mean, we lived by ourselves with, 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 actually, we lived with my mom's parents for a while, and here I was, um, now my mom's attentions were being taken away by this new man in her life, and so I probably was acting out on that, that's my guess anyway. Um, anyway, they proceeded to, I mean, we were very working class. Um, they proceeded to have a couple of kids. Um, I have a brother and sister who are, let's see, my sister is eight years younger than me and my brother is nine. No, I'm sorry. It's the other way around. My sister is nine years younger. My brother's eight years younger. Um, and, um, you know, we grew up, I guess, typical working class family. We didn't, we didn't have a lot of money. We, you know, didn't take a lot of vacations. There just wasn't, it was just really my dad and my mom were both working, you know, sort of adopted or adapted, I guess would be a better way to put it, to um, having a new family, I guess. I, I I say that, but I also stop and hesitate because I I don't know that I had any consciousness of not having a family before that. I was, remember I was so young, between the ages of two and four and a half, almost five, of which... I don't know how much, you know, seeped in about, oh, I don't have a dad or I don't have brother and sister. I mean, suddenly when I was, you know, almost five, my mom got married. And then when I was, what would I have been? uh, Eight, I guess, my brother was born and then nine, my sister was born. And so... You know, now I had a family and I was just adapting to that. We lived next door to my grandparents, my mom's parents, for a very long time. Um, They were Armenian immigrants. They came over from Armenia and survived the Turkish massacre of the Armenians. And so there's a really long story about that. We don't need to go into that. But And then, um, uh, you know, I went off to college at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis spent a number of years after college there. I I was very attracted to the theater, to the performing arts, to writing, and got into all of those things, started a theater company up there, eventually left there and uh, left that company, came back to Chicago, and um, started working in the theater community um, in Chicago. And um, I guess that sort of takes us up to (laughs) the event that Sort of spurred my, well, no, that's not true. I, I, I was here in Chicago for a long time as I was, I'm back here. I, I moved out to Los Angeles um, to try to, you know, try my hand at Hollywood, so to speak. And uh, it was disastrous for me. But while I was out there, that's when the, uh, the event took place that sort of led me to the next chapter of my life, so to speak
0: okay and this is kind of a drum roll because of course i know what this story is (laughs) but we haven't said anything to the audience about why we want the before and after so it so it sounds like so after college actually yes is when you first kind of were triggered into learning so let's let's learn about that will you tell us the story about when you learned a bit more about your biological father and then when you were able to connect with him
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say like during my childhood and my adolescence and and then my young adulthood, I, I, I didn't really think about my biological father. My mom never told me anything about him. No one in my family ever talked about him. Um, I had a father, um, albeit we didn't necessarily connect on a lot of things, but he was a good dad and he worked hard and he provided for us. And um, all that. Um, so it wasn't really until again, after college, um, came back to, uh, came back to Chicago, worked in the theater community, and then decided to go out to Los Angeles and try my hand at Hollywood. And that's when I, I met, um, a British woman who, um, we became, uh, a couple and, um, she, we moved in together. And one day, I don't remember what, well, my, I don't know what happens. My parents, um, Decided they were going to get a divorce, and it was sort of unannounced and unanticipated, and uh, and so everybody was kind of shocked. Now I was I was almost thirty at this time, and so it wasn't like you you would think it wouldn't be such a big deal. I'm an adult. I'm you know a man living out in California doing my own thing, etc. But it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I was really deeply affected by the announcement of the divorce between my parents i i I guess i kept thinking like wow it's i that's when the first notices or the first thoughts about wait a minute i don't know who my biological father is and part of that was the divorce and part of that was my british girlfriend telling me a story about losing her father when she was very very young she she was about three or four years old and her father used to have a little workshop. Uh, she, she she grew up um, in London. Her father had a little workshop in the back of their house and uh, she walked in to find him lying on the floor dead um, when she was about three or four years old. And he had been working on something, a, a vacuum cleaner, and he hadn't bothered to unplug it and he accidentally electrocuted himself. It was a terrible story, tragedy. And she was, so deeply affected by that. And she said to me, but you know, now you have an opportunity. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? I have an opportunity. She goes, well, your dad could still be alive. He could be out there searching for him, uh, searching for you. And and you could go out and try to, to find him and who knows what, what, you know, could become of this. And I was like, oh, I never thought of that before. And So she suggested I ask my mom some questions. (laughs) And uh, so I called my mom and um, she, she gave me two bits of information. She told me his name, uh, which was John Sidney Woods. And she told me that the last time she had spoken to him, which was some 30 years prior to this, that she thinks she thought that he still lived in the Detroit area. She wasn't sure, but that was the last that she had spoken to him. So armed with um, those two bits of information. I wasn't really sure what to do, um, but I wound up going to the library in Santa Monica, California, thinking that um, maybe I could track him down. Um, and what I'm speaking of is, uh, this is, this is su- such a, a dated reference, but libraries used to have, well, they still do, have reference sections. And in reference sections, they used to have some libraries housed phone books. From different cities from around the country. So they may have phone books from like major cities around the country. And the Santa Monica Public Library actually had a Detroit phone book. First of all, who uses phone books anymore? That's the first thing. And then, you know, and so I, anyway, I went there, I found the Detroit phone book. I looked up his name. There are about four or five listings. I copied down all the names and numbers. I raced home. And now I had a, you know, decision to make. What was I going to do? And I, and I, I have to say, you know, I lived in this little, little tiny apartment. It's about the size of a walk-in refrigerator. (laughs) And I just was pacing, you know, like three steps across, two steps back, just nervous, just like not knowing what to do, how to go about this. I like, what happened? What if I call someone? What, how am I going to know it's the right person? There could be many people with this. Obviously I have five listings here. It could be any one of these people. It might not be any of these people. I have no idea. So I, I sort of, narrowed it down, like, okay, I'm going to ask these questions, which will give me more information. So if someone answers the phone, I'll, I'll ask these questions. So I, I finally got the courage. I picked up the phone. I called the first number on the list and a guy answers the phone <laughs> and right away. I was like, I'm so scared. I didn't, I was just choking. I didn't, I couldn't even blurt. like I, all I wanted, I couldn't even say the first question. And, uh, I finally, you know, squeezed out. I said, I'm I'm looking for a John Sidney Woods. And he said, you're speaking with him. And I thought, oh my God, it can't be that easy. (laughs) It's impossible. (laughs) So I, I sort of, um, had the, like I said, I had these questions that I had sort of gone over in my, in my head. And I said, um, did you live in the Boston area in 1957? Because, um, that's where my mother and I lived with my father was in the Boston area in 1957. And, uh, He kind of paused and he said, yes, I did. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is too, it can't, it's it's impossible. And so I said, were you married to an Armenian woman by the name of Adrian Piliposian? That was my mother's maiden name. And he paused again, which seemed like an hour. (laughs) I swear it felt like it was an eternity. And then he said, yes, I was. And I, I realized I tracked my dad down on the first phone call and I was just absolutely beside myself. And I kind of blurted out, um, my God, um, my name is Michael Fosberg and I'm your son. And, and then I sort of had these thoughts streaming through my head about, I'd heard stories about kids who had found their parents after many years missing. And then the parent didn't want to have anything to do with them. And I just thought, Oh my God, what if I, what if I, what if that's the case or what have I done? And, and I, so I kind of blurted out, it's okay, if you don't want to talk to me, I just called to find out how you're doing, let you know I was doing all right. And he said, no, no, my God, son, how are you? Where are you? And uh, I just was like, again, just so overwhelmed. And I said, well, I'm fine. I'm good. I, I live in Los Angeles. I live in Santa Monica, not far from the beach. And he said, uh, uh, how was your mother? <laughs> and and uh, I, I actually wasn't on really great terms with my mother because they had announced I remember I said they announced they were getting a divorce and I kind of blamed my mom for it. And I was just really upset. And I said, well, she's fine. She, you know, she just got a divorce. We're not in the best terms right now. And he said, no son, she's, you remember she's the only mother you've got. And, and, and then uh, I I said, uh, so how are you? What about you? And he said, well, you know, listen, there's a couple of things you should know that I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, well, first of all, you should know that no matter what you were told or what you thought happened, I've always loved you. And I've thought about you a lot. And again, I, I did, I, I mean, I just saying it now aloud, just, it, I was so overcome with emotion. My father telling me for the first time that he loved me, I was so deeply touched. And, uh, and, and like, I didn't, I didn't even have a chance to recover from that. And he says, you know, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. And I, I I remember I grew up in a working class white family thinking I was a white guy. And now here's my dad, my biological dad telling me that he's a black guy. And suddenly I was like, oh my God. Like it was, I was, it was just like, holy cow. And I, and I, and as much as I was sort of I guess i don't know i don't know for lack of a better word surprised by it It was also it, it just really resonated with me it really because all my life i'd felt different well first of all i'd always felt different from my family from my brother and sister because we looked different and i wasn't you know full blood so to speak of them and then i'd also always felt this deep connection to african-american people african-american culture my entire life but i couldn't explain why I mean, there wasn't anything in my family to suggest that I was anything but what they were. I mean, I know I didn't know my father, but it never occurred to me that he could be a black man, um, which is probably a little bit about having white privilege and not thinking outside the box. And, um, and here he was telling me he was black, and then he proceeded to tell me about my family history. I had a great-great-grandfather who was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. My great-grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. He pitched for the St. Louis Stars. And my grandfather was a genius, and the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University are, are named after him. And I was like, okay, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> could we get back to the black part? Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the black part. He could be all this stuff. So, you know, we we, we talk some more. We tried to, you know, wrap our heads around, you know, you're my dad, I'm your son. How do we go about this? And then we, you know, we said we'd stay in touch and exchanged phone numbers and 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 hung up the phone and that's um how my journey um took a 180 degree turn.
0: What a revelation. <laughs> I feel like in so many ways it's monumental. Yeah. It's and how how did you if you can remember back to this time what was going through your head? Did you have shifts in mentality? Did things, you said they kind of clicked a little bit because you always yeah. felt a connection, but didn't realize, you know, what was, what was the process of, I don't know, accepting that, if that's the right way to say it.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I was writing about this today. Um, <laughs> for, for the pod, for the podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I interview people much like this. And then I, I also do a couple um each season, that it's just me talking about something, and I'm I'm sort of um, obsessed <laughs> with this idea of identity: how we identify, how we look at ourselves, how we look at other people, and what is it that um, shapes our identity? And it's different for everyone, you know. It's 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 different for everybody. Everybody comes to their identity in different ways, and even even in an immediate family, you know, a mother, father, son, and daughter, each person will come to their own unique identity in their own way. And they may share some things. Absolutely, they may share some things. But each person comes to it in in their own unique way. And so what might be um, impactful for one might not be impactful for another or vice versa. And so I guess I, again, I mentioned I'd always felt this deep connection to African-American culture, African-American people. I had, when I was growing up, I had, I had an afro I couldn't get a comb through my hair I couldn't get a brush through my hair I hated my hair I hated it and I used to complain about it all the time and my mom was like uh, I don't she didn't know what to tell me and I was like, where did I get no one in my family had hair like that and I couldn't figure it out like like I kept bugging my mom like how did I get this hair and and I think one day she, she sort of offhandedly said well your grandfather had hair like that but she was speaking of her father who was bald so i was like how is that possible he's bald <laughs> i couldn't figure that out um and i had lots of friends in all through my life through high school through college and and onward who would you know come up to me um mostly black friends uh, who would say oh oh you got some black blood in you we know you're black we know you're part of our family we know and I was just like, "Oh, come on, get out of here!" You know, I was it was it was just it was silly to me, like that. You know, how could that be? I I'm I have a family. They're they're white. They're Armenian, and my dad's Swedish. And I don't know, like, and so it wasn't again like it was this shock, but it was also like this. Oh, yeah. That's why you always felt like that. That's why people came up to you and said that to you. That's why you have that afro. That's why you have every James Brown record ever recorded. You 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 like it it's it was inside you, but you weren't able to see, you were I don't know, blind or in denial or whatever it might be. You couldn't see the the clues or didn't want to accept them as Whatever they might be right might might lead you to, and so, yeah, it was just a kind of a mixture of shock and elation when i when I discovered it because the elation also came from the fact like, oh, what a relief, I could take a deep breath now, like oh this is this is who I am, this is what I am, you know, and again, it's different for everyone, but um it made complete sense for me,
0: yeah, it's like connecting the dots and um. I think it's really interesting when you think about identity, because even going back to the fact that up until thirty, your you knew that you were adopted by your um, by your stepfather. Yes, but it wasn't part of it wasn't something that you felt tied to in terms of you needed to find your biological father. Whereas some people, well, when they find out they're adopted, they have that they feel like that's so tied to their identity that they absolutely have to find that out. Whereas for you, that wasn't, it wasn't a concern initially. You know what I mean? Some some things came up that, you know, brought it to light for you, but I think that's another interesting thing. Some people, like you said, everyone's identity is, is different in how we see ourselves and some things that are important to some people don't really matter to other people as much.
1: Yeah. I, I talk about this all the time in my work and that, um, you know, we don't all have the same experience. We're not a monolith. All adoptive people are not a monolith. All black people are not a monolith. All white people are not a monolith. We don't all experience it in the same ways. And so um, some adoptees never search for a, a biological parent and they're fine with it. And some adoptees are tormented by it their entire lives. And some it takes until their early 30s. To go off on that journey and so there's a wide range of experiences just like there's a wide range of experiences within the black community the white community and other communities gay whatever religious communities whatever it might be and so we tend to um you know use a broad brush when we describe categories of people and um i think it's um, important to remember that there's um quite a variety of differences
0: yes and actually with that one of the things that you had shared in a talk that you did is after talking to your dad, you felt I need to confront my mom about this. And you shared a story about a good friend um, that I found particularly moving because Mm. the friend implored you to show your mother grace because her situation led to that. It wasn't necessarily an intentional you know, let me hurt you or anything like that, Yeah, I feel like that grace is something that we're missing. Um, And I'm being a little vague, so I want to open it up and let you share that particular story.
1: (laughs) Sure. Sure. It it actually, there's um, grace and what I um, have come to understand about forgiveness. Um, So when I... When my parents got a divorce, I didn't give all these minute details, but when my parents announced they were getting a divorce and I was I was very angry with my mother, um, I blamed her for the divorce, which was probably very unfair. And I lashed out to her and I didn't speak to her for, I don't know, a good six months or so. And then when I finally came around to talking to her, it was, it was to get more information about my biological father. And then when I got the information... Um, speaking to my biological father for the first time that he was black, I then had another huge resentment towards my mother. Like she had kept this secret from me my entire life, and I I was just so angry with her, and I I didn't know how to I didn't know how to confront her. I I, I knew I had to call her and tell her or t- talk to her about this, but I didn't I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I was so filled with anger, and I, literally it was. literally just before I picked up the phone to call my mother, still unclear of how I was going to deal with it. I I got a phone call from this friend of mine, Tommy. um, And Tommy was an old friend of mine, ironically was originally from Detroit. um, And I I, I told him my story about what had happened to me. And he was like... (laughs) He said, I always knew you were black. You know, it was like I was talking about before, like people just said that to me. Like, I always knew you were black. I'm like, how did you know that? What is why is this? Every Why is everybody saying this? Anyway, and then I told him, you know, I had this deep resentment um, towards my mother. And he I, I mean, he just said to me, he says, no, no, wait, you have an opportunity to absolve your mother of her shame. She was given this shame by her parents, Armenian immigrants. And has held on to it your entire life. And you now have a chance to help her let it go, to help her release her shame and guilt. And I I swear, I've never heard anything so beautiful in my life. I mean, it was just like a, a gift. Um, he gave me that gift, and I then was able to give that gift to my mother by um, following that call up, calling my mom and and letting her know that you know, I understood like she was she grew up in an Armenian household with um, and there's some irony in this. Um, her parents were, again, immigrants from Armenia. Refugees had escaped the the massacre of the Armenians by the uh, Turkish Ottoman Empire, came to this country with nothing, um, you know, took advantage of the American dream and started their own business and had a very healthy middle-class life in, 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 in a little suburb outside of Chicago and raised their children, but also were, uh, I, there's no other way to put it, they were prejudiced. You know, they did not, when my mom was with a black man, when she told them that she had gotten pregnant by a black man, they were they completely disowned her. They did not talk to her. They had nothing to do with her. And she was living in the projects in Boston, in 1958, living in Roxbury. And uh, it was terrible. She was, she kept, you know, you have to remember also immigrant families are very tight-knit. They're very close. And so they just cut her off totally. And so she was 20. She had no money. They were living in the projects. All her family had cut her off. She was scared out of her mind. Um, and and then, um, you know, One thing led to another, they got married, they tried to make a go of it, it didn't work out, she ended up going back to live with her parents, primarily because at one point her mother came out to visit my mother um, while my dad was away at work, saw that I had light skin, saw that I looked white, and 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 then offered an invitation for us to come back and live with them saw that we were living in poverty knew that that was terrible that they couldn't we couldn't sustain it made this offer my mom i mean there were definitely issues of not having money and being scared and not knowing how to raise her son as white as black as what there was very little um biracial community in america back in 1957 also she had difficulties with my father as they went on and living in poverty was very difficult and it wore on their relationship. And so she took um, her mother's uh, invitation, took her up on her invitation and we left my father and we moved back to live with her parents. And so all of this shame and guilt of leaving my father, of of what she did with her parents and what her parents made her feel like, of not telling me all my life, all of these things, you know, boiled up. And it was Tommy, that phone call from Tommy, that helped me really see a clearer, broader, bigger picture. And for that, I was able to offer my mom some forgiveness, um, which is, you know, as I understand it, it's the most difficult work that you will ever do but also uh, is the hardest work you'll ever do but also the most um, rewarding
0: that's it's amazing it's amazing i um going to your grandparents i think that we can acknowledge that there is a time frame consideration with with their mindset and of course their own culture and the things right. that they came from right did you do you have any recollection of any differences that they may have acted towards you versus your brothers and sisters? Because whether you knew or not, they knew that you were biracial. Do you feel like there right. was any, or or were you white passing enough where they kind of just put it out of mind?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, well, so, so my grandfather and I were, I was, I was Deeply close to my grandfather. I mean, he was my mentor. He taught me so many valuable lessons of life, um, how to cheat at golf, um, other very valuable lessons. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, he was. He we were just super close, and I, 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 and because of that, and because of the closeness I had, not just with him, but also with my grandmother as well, but m- mostly with my grandfather. I just feel like they either just put it out of their minds or i i don't I don't know what i mean it was it was clearly there clearly was not anything um any underlying resentment or hesitation or anything nothing that I can think back on and remember anything toward we we did all kinds of things together, my grandfather and again i mean we we golfed, <laughs> he cheated, we golfed uh we we gardened together. Um, we did little silly things together. I mean, he was just, we, I I was probably, I mean, maybe I'm looking at this from my own and I am, I'm looking at it from my own lens, but there were lots of uh, grandchildren in the family. So there were, I had a brother and sister and then my mom's older sister had four boys. So there were, um, seven of us, uh, seven grandchildren and, um, I'd have to say that I was the closest with my grandfather. Um, so there wasn't that I detected any kind of um, things that they were holding back from me.
0: That's good. That's really, that's good to hear. And obviously a close connection with any family is, is amazing. Yeah. I think I want to just emphasize because any, anything outside of what you actually experienced with your grandparents would be speculation. But what if you were darker? You know, it would that situation have gone the same. Uh, It's just a consideration because I know a lot of people do like colorism is certainly a still thing is still a thing across all spectrums, even within racial structures. So it's just an interesting thing to consider. But I'm glad your experience was was good.
1: I think that was an interesting point that you made. I've been asked that question actually before. Like, what if well, the question would be, what if you had found out before um you did what well, how would your life have been and also the uh, in the end of the play which i didn't mention i, pre- <laughs> I performed my story as a one man play <laughs> which over the course of 45 minutes i play all these characters about a dozen different characters and i use it as a diversity training tool we can get to that but anyway at, at the end of the, near the end of the play i actually ask my mother what if i'd had darker skin and my mother's response is that we probably would not have returned home to live with her parents and that our lives would have been entirely different and that is indeed the case i don't i don't think had i had any darker skin that we would have that that my life would have worked out in the same way that it did it would have been very very different i don't think my grandparents would have gotten over it or it, certainly not at the time that they did it may they may have gotten it over over it over time but because again i was well, this is another question that I have I was passing um, they they didn't you know recognize um, that I was black. they recognized that I was their grandson and that I looked white and I, again, I don't know if they ever thought about it again or if it I, we never talked about it obviously before they passed away but um, and that brings up the question you know like was I passing? Are you passing if you don't know you're passing? Don't know
0: passing is someone else's, Projection on you that that you passing is their how they perceive you, not necessarily how you perceive you. So technically, yes, right?
1: Well, I think it's both, though. I think also there are lots of uh, African Americans throughout history who chose to pass. Um, They chose. They made the. Oh, I've got light enough skin. I would like to be a part of regular society and, and 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 have the benefits of having light skin. And there are a multitude of reasons for that, whether it's, you know, getting a a mortgage or walking down the street without being harassed or walking into a store, whatever it might be. And so they made a choice to pass and they were perceived as white pass, but they they weren't perceived as passing. They were perceived as white. And so I, that's why I, I, you know, sort of throw up the question, like, was I passing if I didn't know that I was black? does that mean that I was passing? I don't, I'm just throwing it up as a hypothetical to, and I use this again in in the, in the trainings that I do to sort of put it out there to um, instigate some conversation about what that means. A lot of times, people don't even know what passing is. Um, I'll, I'll 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 be discussing it in a room full of of people after the play we'll have this this talk back and I'll I'll be talking about it and then I'll talk about passing and I'll ask the audience, you know, the audience there is like how many people know what passing in is and you know sometimes only a few hands go up and most of the time those are people of color. And so that's not necessarily a widely known thing in general society.
0: Well, I want to take that as a way to talk about your work because yeah. you've taken this whole story and um, and I think this is probably why I connect with it so much is because in my opinion and how I learn, let's just say that how I learn is through conversations like this, is through art and is through experience. And your your way of teaching is doing just that, um, yeah. whether it be through your yours. Sketch? No, what would you call it? Call it again? Your <laughs> <One> man play. <laughs> one man play. Okay. Yes. Your uh-huh. one man play. I've seen clips of it. I haven't seen the whole thing yet. And the talks that you do, just the way that you engage with it allows people to experience something that they haven't personally experienced. So maybe understand it better. In in doing this work, have you have you gotten surprise reactions?
1: Uh Well, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of
0: reactions.
1: (laughs) I I mean, there are so many, you know, when I first started doing this, I have to tell you, I mean, I, I just thought like I was telling my story. It was a very interesting story. I think your listeners would agree. You agree that it's an interesting story. And I thought, oh, this would be a really interesting story to tell people. And, you know, I, I had a a background in acting and uh, theatrical training and whatnot. So I thought this would be a really interesting way to do it. I didn't really realize how many things could be unpacked from the play. I mean, just right now, we just said the conversation a little bit about passing. I, d- I didn't even think about that. Like, that's in the play. That's talked about in the play. And like, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, and there's so many other things in the play that, um, sort of unpack in, in many ways, it's, it's just as much a play about family secrets as it is about race and identity. Because every family has a secret. And so this is mine and I open it up and I get people coming up to me after shows, oh my gosh, telling me the deepest, darkest secrets from their families. It's amazing. It just opens people up. And it is what I like to refer to as a form of um, what's, what's called in academic circles, intergroup contact theory. And intergroup contact theory is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. And so in a way, it is a, a form of that, maybe a much more dramatized form. I know Oftentimes, two people will come at me and say, oh, my God, your story is so amazing. I have such a boring story. And I tell you, nobody has a boring story. Nobody. That is true. Everybody has a fascinating story. It's just in how you tell it. And some people are a little more gifted at telling that story. And some people are a little more shy or introverted about telling that story. And perhaps those are the ones who are saying, oh, I don't have a very interesting story. But everybody has a fascinating story. So
0: I'm curious in your work, um, because I do love that concept of Finding what we have in common. Funny enough, you in telling your story, I'm like connecting a lot of dots. Like, for example, when my dad got remarried, I protested. Mm -hmm. Um, I I have an ex whose parents got divorced when he was older, and he also took it very. And I wasn't understanding. My parents got divorced when we were young, Um, Mm -hmm. but I experienced that with him because he took it so hard. So, just there are a lot of connectedness, even generations and race, it doesn't matter countries apart. Um, there's so much to connect. What are your thoughts or opinions on people who want to, uh, I guess for a lack of a better word, gatekeep culture and identity who want to say, we'll use you as an example for them to say, you're white passing. So you don't understand my experience. Therefore you're not black enough or you're not white enough or, you know, variations of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> Loaded uh, question. Well, it's, I mean, we're in this place in our world, in our country right now, where there's, um, a lot of gatekeeping. There's a lot of, Uh, you know for lack of a better term and i don't really like this term but the cancel culture and a lot of different things um that are revolve around that idea of um ownership and of othering and i look i'll go back to what we a little thing we talked about earlier uh, we're not a monolith of all these various things the various categories that we're in um it's not a monolith. I'm not, I'm not suggesting by telling my story that I'm telling the black story or the biracial story. I'm not the biracial spokesperson. My story is different than lots of other biracial people who have different skin tone and different experiences and different biracialities. And so, um, I, I guess I would just, you know, put it like that, that that's, that's, I'm not I'm not trying to speak for you, nor am I trying to suggest that my experience is like your experience. We all have different experiences. And that is the richness of our diversity. That is what makes us so diverse, makes us so unique. And so I would rather than push back on someone with that, I would say I would try to invite someone in and say embrace it all.
0: I love that. I love that. So you have... Two books, which we didn't mention yet, and I want to mention, uh, current currently anyways, is that correct still? Two books?
1: <laughs> that's that's uh, Yes.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> so they are, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, uh, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations, and then your memoir called Incognito, in American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. I would like to hear what you're working on now. Are you working on any new book?
1: <laughs> well, uh, so I, I, uh, this, this sort of dovetails into what I've done with the play and how I utilize it. So what I've done, I started doing the play in theaters um, back in 2001. And um, and then I sort of um, it sort of transformed or into um, I, 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 was, I was asked to do the play in front of a group of high school students. Um, who are gathered on the campus of Northwestern University for a summer theater program. And they were from high schools all across the country. And I did the play and, you know, they they were just crazy about it. These were like kids in there between their junior and senior year. And so we did a little talk back after. And, and generally in a, in a, it was a theater program, generally in a theater program like that, you'd expect kids to ask you, you know, like, oh, you know, like, how did you decide on the blocking? And why did you decide to do the characters like that? And how did you decide to... to to shape the script in that way and why the lighting and why the set and blah, blah, blah. But instead they asked me like, uh, what box do you check off on applications and why is race important? And why, why aren't we talking about it? Or why are we, or what, you know, like all these questions that dealt with race and identity. And I realized, wow, it has such a profound resonance with, with young people about this. And so We finished the dialogue, and then individual students came up to me and approached me later and said, you know, I'd really like you to come to my high school and do this. And I thought, what are you, crazy? Why would I want to do that? And then I started thinking about it and thought, wow, you know, if I could do the play and then have this conversation that we just had, that would be really cool. And so that first year, I think I did a handful of schools and did the play and did the dialogue afterwards and had a really incredible uh, experience. And then the next year I doubled that. And then the next year I doubled that. And it just kept growing and growing. And I realized, you know, while I'm doing all this, I'm also digesting everything I can about race, identity, diversity, equity, inclusion, finding out about the field, about the space that the D, E, and I space. And so I was, you know, arming myself with ways and learning, as I mentioned earlier, learning things about the play, about all these different topics and how to unpack them. And then I went from doing high schools to doing colleges. And then I went from colleges. I was at a, I was at a business college one night and um, some representatives from a, a company outside of the, the, the area there came up to me and said, you know, we'd love to have you come and do this for our teams. And then I got I started doing it for corporations. And, and, and as again, as I'm going along this path, I'm developing more techniques to unpack the play after the show to help people have more enriching, fulfilling, authentic dialogue about race and identity. And then I started to develop tools And I have a list of seven tools, and that's actually what the book, um, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, that was published in 2020. And it's really, it's about my experiences traveling around the country, trying to get people to have conversations about race and identity and the different tools that I learned that could be helpful for us. And so I went from doing corporations to doing government agencies, to doing law firms, to doing realtor associations and all these different crazy places. And so now I am, (laughs) you asked me what I'm up to, that's the long answer to the question, but I've been trying to get back to, you know, where I was before the pandemic. So obviously the pandemic hit, everybody, you know, was hit hard. Uh, it obviously made um, going for me, going to do things in person, I couldn't do it. Nobody's and, and still some companies are not fully back in their offices. And so it's starting to come back a little bit now and I'm starting to get some more bookings, but I'm starting to go back to do work with companies and with government agencies and go in, do the play, unpack and facilitate dialogue and do workshops with them to try to get them to give them more tools on how to have these enriching conversations um, I'm doing the podcast um, on a weekly basis. It's called Incognito the Podcast. Um, and I'm having conversations with people outside of the DE&I space who are actually doing this work. And I'm speaking of the DE&I work. So there are lots of people in lots of different fields, lots of different disciplines who aren't diversity, equity, and inclusion officers or trainers or whatever. And yet. They're doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. They just call it their job. <laughs> and so I'm interviewing those people on um, trying to find out what methods, what practices they use so that listeners can pick up more tools, more ideas on how to create a more inclusive environment in their community or in their workspace. And so um, and then finally, I guess I would say I am trying to work on making my life story into a streaming um, series, and so we want to try to we I want to try to um, create some sort of streaming series. I don't know, maybe eight or ten limited series, limited episodes, and um, it's it's a just a it's a it's a, even a much bigger story than I shared with you and your listeners today. Um, it's just crazy. There's all kinds of crazy things that happen along my journey, and I'd love to be able to translate that into uh, a series a streaming series and also be able to incorporate this idea of hey here's a way we can have a conversation about race and identity you know so I, I hope I hope to have that to be a part of the streaming series so those those are the things I'm working on right now
0: so basically you're bored not much going on <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no you know actually listening to that um, there's a former guest. Uh, Tyo Roxon and his tagline for his business is, uh, use your difference to make a difference. And I feel like that Uh, really applies to you. Uh, I love it. All right. Are you ready for the final three questions? Sure. Okay. (laughs) Let's do it. All right. (laughs) So the first one is um, I try to be action oriented. Yes. So from your perspective, in your opinion, what is something uh, listeners can do to have more authentic and challenging conversations in their own lives.
1: Oh, wow. There's so many things they can do. Um, well, I'll revert to the the tools. Uh, and the first tool is tell your story. I mean, it seems so obvious. i have been telling my story here, but tell your story. Like how many people have you told your story to? How many people that you don't know have you been telling your story to? Go here's another thing I tell people to do quite often is for a week wherever you go whether it's the grocery store or the repair shop or the library or your kids school or you know whatever work whatever have a what an awareness while you're there just think for a moment stop and look around the space and see who's there how many people of color are you seeing in that space How many women are you seeing in that space? How many people with disabilities are you seeing in that space? How many older or younger people are you seeing in that space? Become aware of the content, the diversity or lack of diversity in the spaces that you travel. And that's a little kind of a little thing that people can do just to sort of awaken them up to the fact that. You know, we talk about diversity, but in many ways, we're really not very, um, I don't know, integrated, inclusive, whatever we want to say. And so we tend to gravitate to go to places that we often go to, and those spaces are not often integrated with lots of different types of people. So I I would challenge people on that. Tell your story, of course. And again, I don't expect people to to do a one-person play. You don't have to do a one-person play. You could ask someone that you don't know, like, what kind of hobbies do you have? And you can find out so much about a person just by telling them your hobbies. I mean, that tells us so much about individual likes and and passions. And so um, all of those things are are things you can do to to take action and to um, discover more about the spaces around you.
0: That is an amazing piece of advice and also a little anxiety uh, inducing for me <laughs> because I'm so I'm the type of person that is. And actually, I found this uh, with my guests as well. I don't know if you've had any experiences like this, but the the first question I usually ask is for them to tell me about something personal. And that that is so hard for people. They always it's always goes to their business or their profession. We, yeah. we stay away from the personal stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think it's really important because if we can harness our own story, then perhaps we will find the grace needed to allow other people to have theirs.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I think people uh, hesitate because they telling somebody something personal um, uh, requires trust. And if I don't know you and I don't, I don't, I haven't yet established kind of a trust relationship with you. It might be difficult for me to do that. So here, I'm going to flip that. I'm going to, I'm going to say tell me who in your life has been, had the greatest influence on you because mm-hmm. so that's personal, but it's also not so personal that I couldn't tell you that it was my fifth grade, sixth grade teacher. You know what I mean? Like my sixth grade, And why, why did they have such a big influence on me? Well, he, was um he he opened my eyes to the theater he opened my eyes to the art world he used to collect art he used to travel to new york city with his wife like once a once a month and go see theater all the time they would go to london and see theater and he just blew my mind blew up my world and he had such a great influence on me now some people it will be most likely most people will probably list a parent or a family member but even that that's personal, but not so personal that we can't share it. And so um, that's something I would suggest.
0: Yeah, well, I love both of those. Being from the Northeast, (laughs) I also very much appreciate the directness and I think um, pushing ourselves outside of the comfort zone is where we're going to find the most value and the most change. All right, so five words that you would use to describe yourself in your current phase of life.
1: Oh man. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't study for this. Um, <laughs> uh, I didn't study for this. Um, it's I, It's funny. I was, again, I was writing this podcast episode today. And one of the things I was writing about was how we describe ourselves. And m- most of the time we describe ourselves with, oh, you know, Michael's traveled around the country and done his play for that. You know, that's a bio. We would just use our, a bio to describe ourselves. Or sometimes we describe ourselves as I'm a biracial um, I don't know, mid to late age (laughs) male, cisgender male, um, or there are qualities that we use to describe ourselves. And I think some of the qualities that describe me most that mean the most to me are things like, um, ethics and values and, um, friendships and loyalty and passion to change um the world i mean that sounds a little (laughs) sounds a little broad and big but um i i wanna i wanna i wanna leave a mark for people to understand that we can become more connected. You were saying this earlier, like we have more in common than we have different. That's a fact. I want to help people understand that. I want to help people realize that. And so those would be the ways I, I didn't do five words. Sorry. No, you
0: did. <laughs> but you those did. Would be the you, ways I there. counted.
1: Okay, You did
0: five words and they're powerful. So they're (laughs) fantastic. I love it. (laughs) You made it. You aced the quiz. Um, And then where should people go to connect with you to get your books, to learn about other services, talks, all the things?
1: Sure absolutely. the website is incognito theplay.com. all one word incognitotheplay.com. you can find um, video there. you can find books there. both books are for sale on that. If you actually if you buy it at the website, they're on Amazon, but if you buy it at the website, you get an autograph copy so you can do it there. The podcast is actually housed on the website as well um, but you can find it on any podcast platform Incognito the podcast it's called not just incognito incognito the podcast. And I'm also on, well, we just, we just, (laughs) I'm not a social media fan. Um, Quickly, I'll just say, I, I, I do not like what Facebook and Twitter have done to our planet, to our world, to the way that we converse. It's not, it's, it's, it's really, there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation, anger, vitriol on those platforms. And I have not been on those platforms for, I don't know, six or eight years now, I think. Um, but I did just recently open an Instagram account <laughs> at the urging of my assistant. She's like, you got to get on there. I'm like, okay. So uh, Incognito the Play is the handle at uh, at Instagram and you can follow me there.
0: Uh, you'll be safe on Instagram. Okay, you, good. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'll be fine. And you know, the the thing that, because I agree with you, I think when we're talking about social media and the negative impact is we're not in we're letting the algorithms curate our experience rather than curate it for ourselves yeah which could swing in another negative way but you know social media social media but you yeah. should be okay on instagram so we'll make okay. sure to follow you and and i really appreciate this conversation and and the work that you're doing it it like I said, when I was researching this, it impacts me and I know that it impacts so many other people. So I really do think you're fulfilling your mission.
1: Thank you, Heather. It's a really uh, a great conversation.
0: Thank you so much for listening in today and taking part in Michael's journey. It was so interesting to hear how that all played out. And we only got just the tiniest taste. So make sure you go to the show notes, find his links, connect with him, and learn more so you can hear more about his story. Don't forget that as we talk the opinions that we express and share they're ours we encourage you to listen in develop your own conversations and come to your own conclusions connect with diversity on fire on facebook twitter and instagram if you enjoyed the episode i would love your feedback head on over to whatever platform you listen on and leave us a rating and review don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode be sure to share this conversation so others can join us and until next time Don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going.